Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. But you also had people that were very fine people. Very fine people on both sides. And the, and the aliens with mind meld and give them the technology. They're bad aliens. So the, uh, Are you surprised the Nazis were influenced by demons? No, if demons are real, I would definitely think they'd be on the side of the Nazis. Yeah. McDonald's is connected to the Clintons. They chop up the bodies and put them into the sausage and hamburgers. People are being cannibalized. Look it up. And I'm watching CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power to keep this peaceful, you know? It's uh, Pepe's become kind of a symbol. Welcome to Yeah Na Passaran, a show about fascism and its gravediggers. I'm Cam Smith. I'm Andy Fleming. This week, we are joined by Professor Sahana Udupa who is a professor of media anthropology at the University of Munich and a Joan Shorenstein fellow at Harvard University and is also the principal investigator at Four Digital Dignity. She's also recently edited a book, Digital Hate, The Global Conjuncture of Online Extreme Speech. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having me on the podcast. I guess just to begin with, uh, this book, Digital Hate, The Global Conjuncture of Online Extreme Speech, in it you talk about this concept of extreme speech as opposed to hate speech. Could you perhaps take our listeners through what is extreme speech? Yeah, uh, when I was studying vitriolic cultures online, I realized that there was very little ethnographic knowledge about people and their lived words that compose, perpetuate and normalize vitriolic speech acts online. So there was a lot of discussion around hate speech and there continues to be a lot of discussion around hate speech. But there is I think, very little understanding of the motivations of people, their lived worlds, and why do they engage in these forms of uh, vitriolic or contentious speech. So at the very outset, uh, I want to clarify that hate speech is an important concept. So when Jeremy Walder, Waldron defines hate speech as dehumanization of members who belong to another group or believe to belong to another group and reinforcement of the boundaries of the in-group against the out-group, We should take it as foundational premises for marking problematic speech. So extreme speech is not meant to replace hate speech or other related concepts. But the intention is to open up areas that hate speech research has not explored fully and also highlight the limitations of hate speech and other uh, related concepts. And what are these limitations? Hate speech comes primarily from legal normative definitions. And you also have terms like political extremism or online terror, which are rooted in a discourse of securitization. So in these definitions, hate speech is approached primarily as a discourse of pathology, which means it has to be diagnosed, preempted and mitigated because of its negative effects. What we are trying to do with extreme speech is to take a step back and ask how we can understand this phenomenon in its fullest possible scope before we begin to classify and isolate. So two perspectives are very important in this exploration. One is ethnographic sensibility, as I mentioned, to understand the lived worlds of people, online users especially. And the second aspect is historical awareness. So let me just quickly describe both these uh, aspects of extreme speech research. 
Ethnographic sensibility is about keen and grounded understanding of the complex realities that surround online speech. And uh, exploring online speech as a cultural practice and not just a legal regulatory problem. This means that there is no uniform definition of civility or politeness based on which we can have a uniform approach to transgressions that can easily be named as hate speech. So I cannot come with a template uh, about hate speech and come and understand Australian online speech cultures and go with the same template, for instance, to India or Kenya, etc., There are cultural struggles over meanings of civility. This leads to the ambiguity of online speech context. And you might think that we are just academics. We are complicating everything. I would say that this is not just a fine-grained theoretical objection, but a very practical one as well, because we know that the hate speech discourse has led to regulatory excess and misuse. Governments have squashed dissenting voices by invoking the hate speech discourse. So uh, we already, uh, if we already know how hate speech looks like, uh, we do not understand how and why people indulge in it, as well as how this discourse gets misused by different regimes. So that is where I think the ethnographic perspective becomes very important. And as I mentioned, this is also not a media-centric argument. So there is a tendency to understand uh, contemporary forms of vitriolic exchange as something that digital communication has uh, instigated, right? I mean, you always blame digital social media. We understand that digital social media play a very important role, but we depart from this media-centric argument. So exclusionary extreme speech, I argue, is shaped by the longer global process of coloniality. And unless we understand coloniality as a set of relations in terms of nation-state relations, market relations, and racial relations, and unless we take this macro-historical view, we are not going to understand the implications and nature of contemporary online extreme speech. So that's the kind of, you know, marrying of close contextualization of extreme speech in terms of paying attention to social media platform logics and online cultures, etc. But at the same time, what I call deep contextualization, attention to longer historical processes, processes of racialization, and how today's social media markets are actually technologizing these vectors and lived categories of social differentiation. That's why we call it a global conjunction, how different actors, affordances and affects come together in historically specific ways to constitute problematic speech cultures and political formations that ride on these cultures. So this is the kind of analysis that we have tried to advance in the digital hate volume that you just mentioned. In terms of the impact of digital environments on speech, hate speech and extreme speech. Is there anything significant without it actually determining the content of the speech or it it being wrong to assign responsibility for uh, the emergence of this conjuncture to the existence of digital media? What can you say about the, in your research and, and study of digital media that reveals something about what you've described as being extreme speech? Yeah, I think, as I mentioned, when we talk about the conjuncture, uh, we are also acknowledging and, in fact, highlighting the role of social media affordances. And this has been studied by several scholars. um, And there is this emphasis on digital anonymity as a key factor in enabling vitriolic cultures and hateful language online. 
but I have kind of, you know, pushed back against um, this sort of overemphasis on digital anonymity because when you uh, go to the field and look into local abusive cultures, then people are able to second guess who is actually abusing them. And the people are operate upon local knowledge. So when they abuse uh, so-called progressive critic, then they are actually also operating upon the local knowledges around uh, where that person lives and uh, uh, what train that person takes, etc. So uh, what I mean to say is digital anonymity is important, but it cannot be overemphasized because people also know who the abusers are, etc. And they operate upon local knowledge. So that's, the, that's one part of it. But then social media affordances are also playing different kinds of role. And in my own work, I have highlighted the importance of fun cultures in enabling right-wing discourses online. And I think fun is a particularly significant, effective infrastructure, right? I mean, it, it, it is really important in ramping up online extreme speech among right-wing ideological communities in digital environments. And why do I say this? And I think there are at least four distinct at overlapping aspects of fun that are important in understanding how they facilitate right-wing spaces online. So the first part is being funny as a tactical way to enter and rise to prominence within online debates. So there is this real urge uh, to gain online visibility by being funny. And I think online users, especially right-wing users, are constantly strategizing their uh, online entry points through fun. And second aspect is deriving fun from the sheer freshness of colloquialism and political debates. Uh, that is something that's very unique to social media debates. And this stands in contrast to the serious tone of political deliberation and official centricity. And by mainstreaming, the witty political campaign styles as an everyday form of political communication. So you say this constantly on social media. So this I call it as a sort of emergent form of colloquialism that's cemented by social media. And third is this fun. I also understand that as satisfaction of achieving a goal by working with one's own resources. And uh, you, you, I have heard several right-wing users feeling satisfied that they were able to trend a particular hashtag, etc. They derive satisfaction by trending a problematic hashtag. And then the fourth aspect of fun is uh, in terms of group identification and collective celebration of aggression. So that is the sort of, you know, fun culture that I'm talking about. So extreme speech rides on so-called creative, funny online expression. So that's the direct form of online hilarity. So you're able to cloak a hateful language in the so-called funny memes and funny expressions. So what happens is it muddles moral positions. And in fact, right-wing users cheer up each other. And that's why I call it collective celebration of aggression. So fun facilitates collective pleasures of transgression, which have been effectively channelized by right-wing populist groups. So to use a more theoretical language, fun is a meta practice that embeds specific kinds of political subjectivities of sparring groups that go any mile to defend their positions, allowing social media actors to distance from and deny the political implications of what they say and share online. That's why I call it uh, the effects of 
distance and deniability that fun can embed in online practice. So this is just one way to understand how social media affordances are influencing and enabling right-wing discourses. Do you believe that the right-wing actors who are engaged in this uh, fun form of politics do so consciously? That is, they've understood what it is that you've discovered about the political possibilities that are inherent in the use of humour, or do you think that it's more the case that this is the sort of engagement that the digital environment, digital media, and especially social media encourages in its users? Yeah, it's both. Uh, On the one hand, you see that there are uh, deliberate and strategic use of uh, funny epithets, and there is this organised production of right-wing memes, right? They're not just an upsurge of uh, ground-level energies. Right-wing regimes are employing people, deploying resources to create this. It's a factory of creating exclusionary memes, for instance, right? And that meets a sort of bottom-up energy, the so-called voluntary work, around right-wing ideologies that are facilitated by social media environments. Uh, or as that, that's why I call it colloquialism, to make it very informal, to make it very witty, et cetera, et cetera. So that it's both bottom-up and uh, uh, top-down. The campaign structures are also realizing that this is the language that needs to be utilized for uh, propagating uh, election uh, messages around, uh, especially around uh, right-wing um, constituencies. One of the vitriolic online environments you've studied extensively are those of online Hindutva movements. How do you see these ideas playing out in those spaces? And also, what are some of the challenges of studying groups like that? Absolutely. I think that that is one of my areas of research. Uh, uh, and it has been quite challenging to research online Hindutva communities. And as I mentioned, fun is a very important part of this constellation, but also different other ways of embedding their discourse in public uh, debate. For instance, uh, there is this desire to archive debates and they take the form of fact-checking, right? So these are the right-wing fact-checks. So when a journalist makes a mistake in terms of uh, citing a wrong figure, etc., then they would immediately come back, uh, uh, come after the, these journalists, and then um, there is a lot of online trolling. So that's one part of uh, how online Hindutva volunteers and also online Hindutva uh, digital workers employed by different kinds of organized groups they propagate Hindutva online. So that's one part of it. But in terms of researching them, I think one of the biggest challenges uh, is to maintain close enough relations with these research interlocutors and also simultaneously develop and safeguard the space for critique. So in terms of researching Hindutva uh, online uh, and also talking to these Hindutva volunteers and Hindutva digital workers, I think one of the biggest challenges is to balance this need for a trust-based and close engagement and also to be able to safeguard our spaces for critiquing these spaces. So that is that is something that's been very tricky, actually. In terms of the uh, what you were saying earlier about a desire to locate uh, extreme, extreme speech within a certain history and a history of modernity and coloniality, how does that play out in the Indian context when you're examining all the, the Indian diaspora um, and the Hindutva movement? 
Yeah, I think uh, there is a lot to be said about how religious difference became part of the nation building exercise. And that is related to the colonial history and the way religion as a category became very important for political discourses also has to do with colonial encounter. And what we see today, the sort of uh, hatred and marginalization of religious minority groups is directly linked to how the countries were, the country was partitioned. And that is one part of it. But also in a more abstract sense, uh, I've defined coloniality in terms of three sets of relations. And one set of relations is the nation state relation. The nation state relation is established by colonial power and that frames the boundaries of majority, minority, and draws the distinction between inside and outside. And that's very important for us to understand when we understand, when we have to understand contemporary forms of extreme speech. I think it's very important to see how this particular nation state structure as a product of coloniality continues to define who is targeted by extreme speech and who are the perpetrators of extreme speech. So to me, that nation-state relation is very important, as and it is an aspect of coloniality. And the second uh, set of uh, relation uh, relations would be around market, you know, market relations institutionalized by colonial power, now manifest as uneven data relations and computational capital. And that's where the role of social media affordances and their desire to monetize user engagement and data uh, that gets generated becomes very important. And the third set would be racial relations naturalized by colonial power that dispose people as objects of hatred. And I think coloniality has to be understood as a global process that instituted all these different relations as an oppressive, you know, a structure of oppression. And even in the Indian case, on the one hand, there is a very direct historical moment of colonial encounter where religion became, religious difference became a very important political factor. Therefore, what we see today, anti-minority extreme speech, has to do with how India experienced colonial encounter. And the more abstract kind of argument is also that coloniality as a global process instituted these three relations. So we'll have to understand these, this particular history and the sort of broader structure of oppression that coloniality has uh, stabilized and naturalized on a global scale. So only when we acknowledge this, I think we are able to understand the full implications of extreme speech on that. Uh, we've recently seen uh, a whistleblowers at Facebook reveal quite a bit about the internal workings of the organization or of Meta, as it's now known. Have you had a chance to look at much of what was revealed and what jumped out to you as being relevant to your research that was going on behind the scenes at Facebook? Yeah, I think quite a lot. I think what has happened is Facebook papers have, the most recent ones, have given more evidence uh, for what we already know. Corporate social media companies are actively enabling divisive content uh, because of their relentless chase for monetizable content and user engagement, as I just mentioned. So all different revelations and uh, different news reports are very important. But what jumped out to me, two points, I think, stand out. First, how the company tried to evade state regulatory efforts during elections. In India, during the 2019 general elections, for instance, 
the company lobbied to avoid strict social media regulations and secure for itself and other social media companies a voluntary code of ethics. And I, I had argued even then that this is grossly inadequate in addressing polarizing content. And polarizing content was circulating widely during the 2019 elections. And also, of course, they continue to circulate even to this day. So the voluntary code was weak and insufficient. All that social media companies had to do was follow some transparency in paid political advertising and create a mechanism to fast track content moderation actions when they receive requests from the election commission. And this is the deal they got. In fact, social media companies were not even direct parties and they negotiated through an association which was used as a buffer. So that's why I called it double distancing. First, they distanced themselves from this entire process by not being direct parties. And also by drafting a voluntary code of ethics, they escaped uh, enforceable regulation and obligation. So that's one part of it, um, as uh, we came to know once again and confirmed by the most recent Facebook papers. And second, the vast disparity in the resources allocated for content moderation practices. We all know that economically mighty languages are covered when it comes to AI-assisted moderation, especially NLP models that companies employ, but many other languages, even though they are spoken widely, are neglected. Based on the Facebook papers, the New York Times, for instance, reported in October 2021 that, I quote, 87% of the company's global budget for time spent on classifying misinformation is earmarked for the United States while only 13% is set aside for the rest of the world, even though North American users make up only 10% of the social network's daily active users. So the company's spokesperson, of course, has claimed that the figures are incomplete because uh, they don't include the company's third-party fact-checking partners, many of whom are outside the United States. But this is also the point, the very lack of transparency around the allocation of resources and the exploitative outsourcing arrangements with the so-called third-party partners, they reveal the severely skewed structure of content moderation that global corporations have raised in their response to the mounting pressure to take action against extreme speech. So Facebook papers, I think, have have once again again confirmed these disparities and unevenness in content moderation practices and resources allocated for content moderation. In terms of the movement away from or encouraging use of uh, extreme speech as as opposed to hate speech, it seems one of the factors that's encouraged that is uh, a desire to move away from a form of moralism or liberal civility towards examining the more uh, political aspects of speech. Is that correct? And if so, can you talk a little bit more about civility and uh, speech? Yeah, I think um, as we have discussed in the introduction of this edited volume, civility as a uniform culture-blind perspective cannot help us in understanding the varieties of extremeness and the varieties of motivations behind extremeness of speech. So that's our primary contention. And therefore, uh, we go back to how civility is also a way to maintain the status quo. Uh, Therefore, one has to understand the cultural struggles around meanings of civility. And even to this day, I think extreme speech as a form of transgression holds the potential to push back against the status quo 
and raise a voice. So one cannot discount this potentiality. And as a research program, I think we'll have to be very, uh, very attentive to how uh, different struggles over the very meaning of civility can shape contentious speech online. And therefore, I think our research approach is to understand the actual practices and cultures that surround online speech and then uh, go uh, discover, examine the implications of speech acts uh, rather than going with a predetermined normative framework that can actually color and also limit our explorations. So that's what we are trying to push for uh, when we say that civility uh, should also be seen as uh, as the subject of cultural struggle. You mentioned earlier the, uh, Facebook's uh, successful attempt to lobby the Indian government to avoid regulation. We've also seen uh, in Australia when uh, there was even a suggestion that these organisations might be somewhat regulated, they cut off our news feeds overnight. I wondered, are these platforms too big to regulate? Are they Are they too powerful? No, not at all. I think uh, they are not too big at all. Uh, they need to be regulated. So, in fact, in the most recent research paper I wrote for the United Nations uh, Department of Peace Operations, I have listed several interventions um, that can be grouped under four different types. Global interventions uh, include platform governance. So there has to be a global platform, global sort of uh, organization or a mechanism to ensure that there is no unevenness in platform governance, which means that Facebook cannot follow a certain regulatory standard in the US uh, and then just escape different sorts of regulatory requirements in other countries simply because there is perhaps no political pressure, etc. So there has to be global conversation around this. And that's clearly one part of what we need to do when it comes to tackling extreme speech. And clearly, uh, big tech uh, should be held accountable. And of course, uh, uh, aside from these global interventions in terms of platform governance, in terms of addressing uh, unevenness in global uh, platform governance, I've also talked about national level interventions, especially in terms of monitoring gray zones of digital disinformation and engaging repressive states that are manipulating online speech. Then there are geopolitical interventions to tackle disinformation campaigns that are weaponized for information warfare. Then I also talk about community-level interventions to tackle social trust that is the key engine for online extreme speech. So let us remember that this is a very complex problem. So even though we talk about moderating and regulating the big tech, we should also combine it with a host of other measures. So my quick, um, short answer would be that platforms are not too big to regulate. And I would also add that we should not regulate only the big tech, but also small platforms. And that's something that I've been writing about uh, recently. Uh, and if we have the time, we can also discuss about uh, the most recent regulatory frameworks that are evolving around digital social media companies. For instance, the EU regulatory framework and the most recent Digital Services Act, it it has premised that breaking open the centralized platform economy, uh, by centralized platform economy, we mean uh, big transnational corporates, uh, that would be uh, a significant step towards reducing the conditions of virality and amplification of online illegal content. 
So in contrast to suspicion toward the big three, and of course, this suspicion is very much justified, the EU framework has highlighted the potentiality of small platforms to offer a space for alternative discourses that could provide a more level playing field in the so-called marketplace of ideas. So uh, here again, I see the limits of uh, liberal thinking. The principle of proportionality elaborated in these regulations has linked the pursuit of anti-competition policy objectives with the assumption that small platforms hold the possibility to push back against the big three's monopoly over online discourse. So although the EU proposal to require very large platforms to open up to competitors with mandatory interoperability is relevant in the pursuit of anti-competition policy objectives, I would say that this is not an obvious solution to the problem of extreme speech. Uh, because this proposal assumes that regulating large platforms and fostering smaller platforms would create a scenario where users can easily choose between different social media communities they would like to be part of, uh, depending on the content moderation policy and privacy needs and so on. So this approach, thick with liberal language, underestimates the possibility that this very marketplace for ideas could easily provide a way for hate mongers to hop between platforms and innovate on content. And there is so much evidence today. For instance, the right-wing uh, alt-right actors in the US, the Trump supporters, they migrated to parlor. At least they tried to market, migrate to parlor. And even in Brazil, right-wingers uh, tried to mi migrate to parlor. And in India, religious majoritarian activists are now rushing to uh, an app called Coup after voicing their disappointment with Twitter for blocking their handles or demoting their content. So Richard Rogers, for instance, uh, has shown that anti-establishment right-wing celebrities in Europe migrated to Telegram and to uh, what, how, what he defines as the larger alternative social media ecology after being deplatformed by major social media companies, including Facebook, Twitter and YouTube. So this is the sort of uh, space that is emerging, not only in Europe and North America, but also countries like Brazil and India. So as the case of India suggests, politically vested interest groups are investing and they are more likely to drive the market of multiple smaller players toward partisan and divisive messaging. So therefore, policy measure, measures should recognize that although large multinational social media companies play a major role in the amplification, curation and distribution of extreme speech, uh, we should also pay attention and uh, track how smaller and niche platforms have emerged as a breeding ground for hateful subcultures, as alternative avenues, and as transit points for the so-called mainstream hate, and as gray zones for deep extreme speech. So especially in contexts where governments are coming hard on, uh, big th on the so-called big three for not complying with their repressive regulations, domestic platforms that use improvised patchwork technologies with backhanded backing of the ruling re regimes can become the new danger zone. So this is the sort of regulation that I'm pushing for. We should definitely continue to focus on big platforms and they are not definitely too big to regulate. At the same time, we should also pay attention to this emerging space of smaller platforms that are now offering alternative transit points to hateful language. So Hannah, one thing that occurred to me in speaking about or thinking about uh, the way in which there's developed 
in terms of the internet, a relatively, well, a very small number of very large corporations which dominate most online discourse, which has also been a factor in what's termed a, con- a certain conjuncture which has produced um, a renaissance in exclusionary politics. And I think about also when the internet emerged and it seemed to promise something quite different, a diversity of actors engaged in you know, a multiplicity of, uh, let's say, for the sake of argument, civil forms of discussion. That Was that always a, an illusion, a, a delusion in the capacities of the internet to transform politics and society? Or is the kinds of regulatory frameworks that you think might be helpful, is that a way of exerting pressure upon these companies, upon, upon the market, to bring back to life some of those factors that allowed for, I guess, more positive, less hateful forms of political participation. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, we need to also recognize that uh, social media companies have offered opportunities for global solidarities around progressive movements, whether it is the Black Lives Matter movement, which resonated so well with uh, uh, the Dalit Lives Matter movement, for instance, or the Me Me Too movement, environmental movement. So we cannot really discount um, and dismiss uh, the potentiality of social media networks to enable this form of global conversation uh, around and also different community-based mobilizations uh, for environmental or gender-based justice, etc. So we have evidence uh, for um, these movements gaining salience and velocity and global visibility uh, because of the affordances that social media companies and social media platforms have enabled. So this is not to say that uh, we have, there is a clean balance, uh, but it's just to show that there is the potentiality. And you are so right that uh, if we design our regulatory interventions well enough, I think we can harness those energies and uh, tackle the darker side of digital communication more robustly. And that's why I think uh, community-based, aside from platform governance issues, community-based initiatives are also extremely important. And uh, I've uh, been talking about deep extreme speech in my most recent work. Uh, I've talked about how extreme speech circulates on WhatsApp groups. And this is this sort of virality is not really technologized. It is it is about tapping community based trust and uh, penetrating family and neighborhood uh, WhatsApp groups. Uh, so right-wing regimes, for instance, have their people represented in these very intimate WhatsApp groups and sharing on those WhatsApp groups uh, are a result of both fun as well as obligation, which means by sharing content, you think that you are performing a duty uh, and you feel if you don't share, it conflicts uh, with a sense of obligatory ties you have with your neighbor or your uncle or aunt. But this is the sort of intimate WhatsApp space that right-wing regimes are also trying to influence by having their representatives enter these spaces. And that's the sort of deep extreme speech. And I call it the social corollary of deep fakes. So uh, if deep fakes are the technologized form of extreme speech, uh, uh, deep extreme speech is talking about the social form of tapping trust and community-based uh, allegiances and affinities, in fact, kin-based uh, and kin-like relationships for propagating very problematic content. I talk about this 
uh, also to highlight the importance of uh, inverting this or subverting this possibility and and uh, using these very channels for uh, positive uh, narratives. Uh, Sahana, just in closing, could you tell us a bit about this organisation for Digital Dignity and what, what does it do? Ah, for Digital Dignity, it's a research program. We are studying online digital cultures precisely to understand how uh, lived worlds of online users can influence mighty political structures. And uh, we, we have a lot of uh, different theoretical positions on this form of communication, networked public sphere, mass self-communication, etc. But uh, we wanted this ethnographic sensibility and historical awareness to shape this particular research program around uh, social media discourses, social media cultures and their implications for politics. So that is the objective of for digital dignity. But aside from the research um, uh, objective, we also are very keen on participating in policy discussions. So the idea is to also uh, engage in different po- policy and public engagement activities. We also had a podcast, for instance. So what we are trying to do is through our research and also through our public engagement policy engage- and policy discussions, we aim to advocate for online spaces where political discussion can take place in an enabling culture of exchange. So we aspire to uh, sort of rescue digital cultural interfaces from descent into regressive tropes, whether they are based on gender, caste, national origin, immigrant status, or racialized categories. So the, from the very beginning, the idea was to contribute to scholarly debates, uh, as well as engage in public engagement, uh, public and policy discussions, as I mentioned. So it's been four years now, and uh, we have published articles and books, uh, but also podcasts. And the more recent uh, one, um, I mentioned the research paper on digital technology technology and extreme speech for the United Nations. And one other policy intervention is the AI for Dignity project. It's the latest project in the For Digital Dignity program. So the idea is to bring AI developers, ethnographers, and fact checkers from four different countries to develop a collaborative coding space to tackle problematic speech online. So we are very keen to translate what we've gathered through research into real-world possibilities. And uh, we are very keen also to push for a global framework that goes beyond the so-called global north and global south distinction and tries to understand the connections and the tensions that arise out of such connections and contiguities. So this is the vision of for Digital Dignity Research Program. Well, that is all we've got time for. Sahana, thanks so much for joining us. If people would like to find out more, you are on Twitter at four, the number four, Digital Dignity. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for your questions. Well, that's all we've got time for on the radio, but we'll have a few more questions with Sahana on the podcast version of this show, which you can find at 3cr.org.au slash Pasaran. Global Infada is up next. We'll catch you next week. See you then.
Have you heard of long COVID? If you or someone you know have had COVID-19, you may still experience symptoms weeks or months later. There are many symptoms of long COVID, but the most frequent are extreme tiredness, shortness of breath, and muscle aches and joint pains. Anyone can experience long COVID, including children. You can find information in your language on the Health Translations website, healthtranslations.vic.gov.au. Just type long COVID as a keyword. A 3CR supporter.